Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories Online on Pioneer 90.1's RadioNorthland.org website. You can check us out there 24-7 and listen to past installments of Rasslin' Memories Online. And we have lined up a great guest today. Not only was he a two-time WWWF and WWF champion, he also is from the great state of Minnesota. And uh, let's go right to my partner in crime here before we introduce our guest, noted pro wrestling historian George Shire. And George, it's great to have you back on Wrestling Memories. And it's great to kind of wrap up the year with uh, one of uh, Minnesota's great homegrown pro wrestling projects. Absolutely. And you you kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag a little bit there, Glenn. But bit. we do have uh, a big Minnesota wrestling star and someone who went on to become the Worldwide Wrestling Federation later to become the World Wrestling Federation, and, of course, it's the predecessor to today's WWE. And I'm talking about, you want to, you want to introduce him, Glenn? None other than... Mr. Bob Backlund, all the way from, uh, originally from Princeton, Minnesota. He's chatting with us today. Uh, you're out in Connecticut, right, these days, Bob? Yeah, I live out in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Yep. We've lived here since 1977. So that's basically been uh, right from when you started the run uh, with uh, with Vince Sr. up there in New York, uh, and you began what was to be the second longest reigning WWF championship reign, title reign in history. Nowadays, they're, they're lucky they can get it out past the month as far as the, without exchanging a title here and there. But you you and Bruno, man, you guys had some longevity. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, it, the business has sort of changed, so uh, it's hard for somebody to keep it that long, but... Uh... Um, yeah, it was a pleasure and a lot of fun. And yeah, I just, uh, you know, my wife and I moved back to Minnesota to have our daughter born there. And she was born, uh, in, um, uh, 77 in November. And right after she was 11 days old, then we drove out here to, uh, Connecticut and started in the WWF. Yeah. FF. Say. Yeah, yeah. there's so many W's back in the day. We're talking about your book, Backlund, from All-American Boy to Pro Wrestling's World Champion. And this book has been uh, on the has been on people, professional wrestling fans' minds for quite some time. We started to see uh, hints of this book uh, as far as getting released, and we had to wait for a little bit. But I think the waiting is probably uh, going to be the ultimate payoff because what you have here is a fantastic book, Bob. Uh, you definitely don't leave any stones unturned here. This is a very honest look at both your pro wrestling life and your personal life uh, and growing up here in Minnesota. Yeah, oh yeah, I love the book. I'm very proud of the book. Uh, you know, Rob Miller, he, uh, the writer, he wrote me a uh, FedEx in nineteen in uh, '09, stating that he, I was he, I was his childhood hero, and he wanted to write a book about me and. Uh, we got together at the library in Glastonbury, Connecticut. He wanted to know if I was really that person that he idolized. We sat there and talked for hours, but it seemed like it was minutes. And uh, we stepped forward and started uh, uh, the process of writing the book. It took us five years, but it was all worth it. And he really um, put a lot of time into it and uh, uh, did a great job telling my, my life story. And you've definitely been putting a lot of time in as well. I've, I've listened to a couple of po podcasts that you have, have been on, and, boy, you are definitely pounding the pavement. Uh, you really seem proud with uh, what has become the finished product here with uh, your, your, your autobiography. Yeah. You know, one of the one, big reasons why I, I wanted to write a book is uh, I, had, I had, you know, when I got, when I stopped after, uh, in 1983 or four when I stopped wrestling, I, I kept thinking, what the heck am I going to do to find something better than six years with the WWF championship? 
And so I was concentrating on the past rather than the future. I didn't think there was anything left for me in the future. And I read this book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and I talk a lot about it in the book. That meant a lot to me because that book got me thinking about the future and not the past. And right now my, my future is better than the past ever was. Yeah, and, and, and this book, too, is, uh, you know, not just a, a pro wrestling story. This is also a story about how you have been able to overcome so many obstacles that uh, have, become, have been come up your way uh, in your life, in both your professional career and growing up in, in Princeton, Minnesota. I mean, from birth, it seemed like uh, you had some of the odds stacked against you, but you were able to rise to the occasion and rise above a lot of adversity growing up. And in this book, it talks about a lot of the adversity you had growing up. Even from yeah. birth, it seemed like uh, you had a the hall. Well, yeah, it was uh, it was a weird lifestyle, but uh, um, yeah, you know, you know, I got help from this Think and Grow Rich, and I'm hoping this book can help other people get successful or never give up. It's a matter of never, never stopping and never giving up and never looking down or never looking back. Keep working hard, go forward, and make those steps and improve and improve. And when you mess up, you definitely have to fix that problem instead of doing the same problem over and over and over and you get into your life. Oh, absolutely, Bob. And uh, like I mentioned, I, and I've, I've listened and I've read a little bit uh, from the book uh, about uh, you growing up, you had some health trouble that you had to overcome early on. Uh, talk about that. I mean, this was very early on in your life. Well, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know if it was health, but I didn't move for two years. Oh, wow. And I, I laid down on the floor. I never picked my head up. At all. I didn't associate with other little babies. I just laid in the crib. And the only thing that did to me that I could think of was wrong, uh, unless there's some other thing, my, I didn't be, uh, uh, get that, uh, that, that, on your spine, it's like an S shape, mm -hmm. and the bottom and the top. I didn't pick my head up, so my bones didn't uh, shape that X shape. I, I have, uh, my, it goes straight up. And so I have always had, had perfect posture. And it was a negative thing for me because I'd hear my dad and my his brothers talking to me and they'd be pointing at me and, and I didn't know what they were talking about, but I thought they were pointing at me in a negative way mm -hmm. and I'd leave the room. I didn't want to be around them anymore. It sort of got to be a problem with me mentally because I thought there was, what, what's wrong with me when people were pointing at me, but they were pointing at me because they had good posture. <laughs> And uh, let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned your father and your uncles and stuff and uh, how you, you didn't quite understand what they were saying to you and you thought that maybe they were insulting you. But in this book, too, it talks about uh, another way that you arose above. You you dealt and you dealt with it, honestly, the topic of growing up with your, your father and, and some of the problems your father had and its effect on the family. And, and for that, it, 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 I think that's very, very honest. And I, I really did enjoy reading that and, and finding out just uh, how, how you grew up and the environment that you grew up in in Princeton. Glenn, that was the last thing I said to Rob Miller, the writer. And I, I was almost convinced where I shouldn't do it and shouldn't talk about it. But the last minute, um, I said, you know what? It's part of my life. I got to do it. It's my life story. I don't want to, you know, just throw it out there because it's so negative. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the long run, it was actually turned out to be positive because everything worked out fine. But, uh, uh, yeah, and I and I probably wouldn't have gotten involved with athletics because I was trying to find ways to stay away from home rather than going home, and I didn't care what it was. I didn't know nothing. My my none of my family was ever in college or never in any athletics. Uh, I didn't care. I didn't know about them. I didn't know anything about them. But I went to them because I didn't have to go home at night.
Mm-hmm. Now, what, now you, you discovered athletics. Now, about when did you start getting the wrestling bug? Because uh, you definitely uh, excelled, ended up excelling in this uh, amateur pro wrestling from the collegiate level, you know, through college and stuff. But when did you uh, get involved, and when were you steered into the direction of, 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 of amateur wrestling? When I was in fifth grade, they used to have a they had a class where you half of it would be wrestling and half of it would be uh, in the PE class. Half of it would be. Uh, uh, about basketball and half wrestling, and they just were, wanted to expose it to people. But I was very poor at both of them. But the, this uh, his name was uh, Schultz uh, was the wrestling coach, and uh, he had me stay in wrestling, but I was horrible at it. Mm-hmm. And I was exposed to it then. But I really got supposed that when I got into junior high school, we were in the high school uh, at junior high school was with the high school, so I went to the wrestling practices at night, so I wouldn't have to go home. So I was wrestling with the guys that were on the team, and uh, I got beat all the time. And I, I don't think I ever won a match uh, until I was like a almost a junior in high school. Yeah, and it was from those lumps and stuff that came experience. And a lot of this stuff, too, is the way you advanced in life was through a lot of life lessons. And you learned a lot by watching those guys. And it really helped you out in high school as far as uh, moving up the ranks in amateur wrestling by the time you were out of high school. Yes, it did. You know what it did is... I, when I was I was getting thrown around by these guys that were very experienced, but I was learning from it too. I was getting I was learning how to stay in position. I was, a lot of times I wasn't strong enough to do the moves, but I knew the moves. So when I did get strong enough, I had the the knowledge of where I should be and when I should be there. But I just wasn't strong enough to uh, get there. But uh, um, I had some good things happen, uh, uh, and. Uh, um, it, it gave me the strength and the endurance, and uh, I was able to uh, utilize what I knew. Yeah, and, and you took that talent, and you ended up uh, at, at, at a place that's uh, not too far down the road from where uh, we are, uh, are doing our, our program today here at the station uh, in Fargo, North Dakota. You ended up on the campus of North Dakota State University, and brother, once you got there... You really shook the world. You were a two-sport guy, which I thought was crazy because you were a world-class professional wrestler, or, uh, not professional wrestler, but a world-class amateur wrestler. You were winning division championships, but you were also playing football. How were you able to make that transition from one sport to another? Because that's just two different areas. I mean, that's two different areas of, like, endurance and stuff, too. I mean, you take one has pads, one has not, but, I mean, it's just two different animals. How were you able yeah. to keep it together uh, to transition to these two sports? Well, I did. Uh, in high school, I did... Uh football, wrestling, and track. And again, it was because I, you know, but, um, yeah, you know, and you know I went to a junior college in Iowa for two years. Yep, correct. Okay. So, anyway, I, I wrestled there and I played football there. And uh, and when I wasn't wrestling, playing football, I was lifting weights and running or whatever. But anyway, at North Dakota State University, I did both. And um, I went there as a, as, as a junior and the co- nobody knew me at all except the wrestling coach. He recruited me. He knew me very well. He knew how I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first um, the first week I was there, they had these exercise things that they were. It was a bar that had two poles, and it was hooked. It cemented into the ground. There was three of them at different heights, and one was the height of a deadlift. And they'd been there for like thirty years, and they'd have everybody do that. And uh, they had me do it. I pulled it out of the ground. And the coach's eyes almost popped out of his head. It never had been done in in, in 30 years by anybody on the football team. And I did it the next day. I did it, and they took him out. 
But uh, uh, my, the wrestling coach said, yeah, Bob Backlund wouldn't fake a grunt on anything. That's how well he knew me. Bucky Mond was his name. And Ron Earhart was the head uh, football coach there then. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I went through the season, and uh, they didn't use me a lot, but they played me in a, in a, we got in a bowl game. And there was a player that got killed in a hunting accident. I took his place in the bowl. It was the community bowl uh, out in uh, the Rose Bowl. Um, and they played me, and his position was defensive tackle the whole game. I got 22 tackles and two fumble recoveries. And we got to be the national champions that year in that division. And it was on January 9th. And I, w- I want to say this, wrestling, where wrestling starts in... Um, in uh, December, mm-hmm. I lost. I didn't wrestle for half the wrestling season. I came ho- back to Fargo, and I had to get down to 190 pounds in three in, in uh, eight days. I lost 40 pounds in eight days. What did that do to your body, though? Putting taking all that weight off so quick. Yeah, we were wrestling at Moorhead uh, State College right across the river mm-hmm. that night. That, that on the eighth and. Um, I lost 40 pounds. I was so weak, I got beat. But uh, um, I, um, I wouldn't suggest anybody else to do that ever, but uh, I just wanted to make that weight class. and I wanted, then, then I went on. Um, the tournament for the national tournament was like in February. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and they were, gonna, they were seeding the wrestlers. They wouldn't seed me because I, was, I didn't have enough matches. I had to have 10 matches to get seeded. Bucky Mine tried to talk him into seeding me because of my win-loss. I, I only lost that one match against Moorhead mm-hmm. that year. Oh, wow. So uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, they didn't do that, and I was the bottom. And I came through, and I was in the finals. And I won the, I won the national tournament with a bear hug. Wow. And uh, the place went crazy. Bucky Mond... Uh, says some good things in the book. He said it's the most electrifying place that he had ever been in as far as the, a response from a wrestling match. Just just that electric. It was kind of a precursor of things to come for you in the mat world uh, being popular up in New York. But we want to talk about the pro wrestling, and we want to talk about the significance of not only NDSU, but Fargo, North Dakota. It was in Fargo, North Dakota, that you had what was to be uh, the first of several chance encounters that would really shape your destiny, your life, and your career now, can Absolutely. you tell us? Yeah, can you tell us about this encounter uh, with with uh, this 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 person that really helped uh, get you on your way into the world of professional wrestling? Well, you know what? Uh, I went to Fargo, North Dakota, and I came from Waldorf, and Waldorf was a little junior college, about six hundred people. And they uh, and we, they had a weight room there, and I used to want, run the weight room. I was think I think it was the only one that ever went in there. Uh, but I worked out every day after practice and a little bit before. But I got up to North Dakota, and I said, oh, geez, I'm going to have a great place to work out here. They didn't have anything. <laughs> and they, didn't have, uh, they had a universal gym, which is a waste of time for me. I used to go down to the YMCA and do my workouts there. Yeah. And they had a great, uh, uh, it wasn't big, but it was a great little gym in the middle of a track that was indoors. And I went down there um, whenever... Uh, I got time just about every day. Um, it worked out, worked out. But one day when I was in the gym, there was this blonde guy over there doing curls, and he had big muscles. And I, my mom was a big wrestling fan, so I recognized it was Billy Superstar Graham. It was in 1971. Um, 
and we talked a little bit, and he talked a little bit about wrestling. He asked me if I ever thought about it. I said, no, I never really thought about it. And then he he went back to doing his uh, squirrels, and I went back to doing my bench presses. Anyway, um, as time went by, um, you know, I, uh, I I got out of college, and I, I kept uh, um, thinking about what I was going to be doing, and I tried to get into uh, – I played one year of semi-pro football. I wanted to attain somebody's uh, – the goal, his name was Ross Johnson, and he's in a book. He was a he became my friend mm-hmm. after four years of trying to find one, and then he passed away. I, I was tr- going to try to attain his goal as being a professional wrestler, but I did a professional football player. Mm-hmm. I didn't attain it, and then I, uh, I I I I drove home from I, Illinois where I was working out with this semi pro team, and started thinking about what I was going to be doing, and I thought about wrestling because of what uh, Billy Graham said to me, mm-hmm. and this was a big miracle. Uh, but uh, um, in 1978, February 20th, I'm standing in the middle of the ring and looking across the ring at a guy that I met in Fargo, North Dakota. And the guy that I met in Fargo, North Dakota was trying to talk Vince McMahon out of putting the belt on me. Wow! He was the one that kind of convinced me to, or got me thinking about wrestling. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm in the ring with him, and I become the WWF champion in, on February 20th of 1978, beating superstar Billy Graham. Isn't that funny how that works? And I'm going to bring in right now professional wrestling historian George Shire, my co-host on Wrestling Memories. And George... Uh, we're getting right around the time. Uh, you probably remember when Bob uh, first started getting broken in into the pro wrestling business. Oh, I sure do. I sure do. And you know, Bob... You had mentioned that uh, the the chance meeting with superstar Billy Graham, but I believe it was Eddie Sharkey who gave you some of your uh, professional wrestling training. Is that correct? Tell us how you met up with Eddie. Well, you know, I uh, I was living in uh, Anoka, Minnesota. I had a roommate by the name of Elroy Carpenter. He was uh, he went to high school with me. Uh, anyway, I start I. Uh, I, I knew about the 7th Street Gym in Minneapolis, and I went there to work out. And uh, there was some wrestlers like uh, that were there. Mad Dog Rashawn was there. Billy Red Lions was there. Um, and then uh, Eddie Sharkey was there. He ran the gym. And I'd worked out there a couple days in a row, and he finally came over to him and he started talking to me. And uh, he asked me, geez, do you want to train with me? I'm training guys to get into professional wrestling. So uh, I thought about it, and geez, uh he charged me $500. I gave him the $500. I went down there three, three days a week and, uh, and trained with him for, uh, um, for about uh, 10 weeks. And then he we, we should point out said, that no, when you ready. mentioned Mad Dog Vachon and Billy Red Lions being there, that um, they obviously were not training with Eddie Sharkey at that time. They were already established pro wrestlers. No, this was a, this was a weightlifting training place. Uh, sure. you know, they had a lot of big weightlifters, big guys that were squatting like 600 pounds and all that. Uh, but in, in the back room, Eddie Sharkey had a, uh, a gym set up uh, uh, separately. It was a separate business. Now, you had worked a little bit uh, when you first got started in the pro business. You worked a little bit for the AWA, for Vern Gagne's AWA. You were one of the few guys during that early era in the early 70s even the later 70s, that didn't get your training from Vern Gagne and Billy Robinson because they had put out quite a few of the superstars of the, the 70s and into the 80s. 
Yeah, you know, and I, you know, Vern used to come and watch. He was at the state tournaments when I was wrestling. He'd sit with uh, the guy, his name was Reed Henschel. He'd sit with mm-hmm. him and watch the matches. And I don't, I'm not sure. I, I, I was too shy to ask him. He never, I didn't even know about his. I just, um, his training programs, I just, uh, uh, met, uh, uh Mr. Sharkey and, uh, he asked me and I did it. <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, Jesse the Body Ventura was trained by Eddie Sharkey also. Correct. Well, one of the things that you had going for you was your amateur background. As you said, you, you wrestled a lot. And, you know, one of the things that pro wrestling back in that era, still in the 70s and into the 80s, uh, one of the emphasis was always on an amateur background. So many of the wrestlers that came up from the 50s on up were, had that amateur background. And obviously in the AWA, where you had some of your earliest matches, that was an I, area I, that I would, really emphasized wrestling first and then a character second or, or any type of gimmick that a wrestler may have had to have to get themselves over. And, you know, you were around some, I know you were in the AWA. You mentioned your daughter being born here uh, in 76. And that's about yeah, that the time that you were here. And uh, what, you know, the talent roster that the AWA always had. But one thing I noticed too is that I don't think there was any doubt that Bob Backlund could be a success when I look, because you were around in the territory days, which were so, so vibrant in the seventies and you were around, I know you made a pit stop to Amarillo where you hooked up with a couple of guys by the name of Dory and Terry Funk. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, my first territory was Louisiana and, uh, I like, like, uh, uh, Eddie Gray or uh, Eddie Sharkey said, "Hey, uh, hey um, get some pictures, get a resume, and mail it to these addresses." And then two weeks later, call these people and ask them if you can go down and wrestle for them. The first mm-hmm. one I called was uh, um, Stu Hart in Calgary. Okay. And uh, I got on the phone with him. You know, obviously then it was pay phones. And he was a very slow talker, and I kept putting quarters on in there. And before I got to ask him that if I could come up there and wrestle, I was out of money. <laughs> so I had to hang up the phone, and then uh, um, I, I had to go a couple, about a week or two to find some, get some more money, work for some more money to be able to call the next guy. I called Leroy McGurk down in uh, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was right. a national champion uh, when he was in uh, um in college, and he liked the wrestling thing, but he was blind at the time. So somebody had to tell him and read him my resume. But uh, when I talked to him, he invited me to come down there and have my first match in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Do you remember who that opponent was? Uh, I, I, I believe it was Ron Starr. Yeah, okay, yeah. Anyway, I left Princeton, Minnesota with a 1968 green Chevrolet Impala. I had $20 in my pocket. And nobody around my area thought it was a good idea. They said, you're never going to make it. You don't look like Mad Dog. You're not uh, the crusher. You're not uh, um, the mean, bad guy. You're just a kid. You're just a, you know, you're never going to make it. Anyway, I didn't listen to that at all. I believed that I, uh, I had a lot of confidence in the, in the things that I learned when I was in high school and through my life, and I was going to utilize those tools to climb the ladder. So I went on the road. I got down to Baton Rouge, Atlanta, Louisiana, had the match. Uh, he beat me, um, uh, you know, and I, and I uh, got done wrestling. They got paid. I got paid $5. I made a reservation at the Sheridan before I went down there, so I had to cancel that. 
and I'm driving around thinking what I'm going to do. I go in a store and I buy a can opener and I buy uh, all the tuna fish I could buy. And I'm driving around town. I finally find a church. I park in the church and I sleep in the trunk of my car. Wow. I'm about 1,500 miles away from my home. And uh, I'm broke, homeless, and sleeping in the trunk of my car. And I didn't think that would ever happen to me because of the, how things have climbed in my life. But it, it was very valuable to me. I slept in the car, and I, I went to the YMCA's to work out. That's the only thing that kept me going. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I got done working out, I'd feel good, and I'd feel positive. Uh, and when I got up in the morning, I didn't really feel that good. But um, um, that's how it got started, is uh, in the trunk of my car. Well, you had to have some faith in there too, Bob, because uh, you know obviously you were you were down and out at that point, and and in in a way, the people that had told you not to leave Princeton, they were they were right at that point. But I really love the fact that you, you've already told us you've got a a strong passion to succeed and to move forward rather than living in the past and looking at what happened before. And I think that's a lesson that every single person can learn from. Well, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I, you know, I had that book that really helped me back in the 80s, and I'm hoping this book can do the same things for other young people and uh, people of all ages, actually. But, uh, nope. but yeah, nope. you know what, uh, but, uh, you were talking about Amarillo. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a little bit of a, there's, I believe in miracles also, George. You know, but uh, that's a miracle to me, too, Amarillo. Well, it definitely was one of the toughest territories back in the territorial days. And when you got guys like the Funks running it, we all know all of the great stars, the great talent that came out of of that uh, that era. You know, and, and here you are gaining experience from guys like Dory and Terry and you know, give us some give us some of the background on the other guys that you hooked up with while you were down there. Well, you know, let me let me I'll tell me tell you how I got there. I was uh, uh, Terry Funk came over to help out Leroy McGurk with a promotion. Mm-hmm. He was going to wrestle somebody and be a bad guy and make draw some money. I met him then, and we talked a little bit. And I told him that it was a little bit rough sleeping in the trunk of the car and this and that. He went back to Amarillo, and then um, when. Um, uh, about uh, two, three weeks later, uh, Grizzly Smith was the booker then at, in, in uh, Oklahoma wrestling in Oklahoma, Louisiana. He, right. he came to me and Bill Ash, and we were going to go over to Amarillo, and we were going to work with uh, two guys. One was Dick Murdoch, and uh, I was going to get beat up by Dick Murdoch and put him over and make him look good on TV. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Bill Ash was going to work with Terry. So I rode with Bill Ash to, to Amarillo, Texas. And we got to TV, and I was in the back. I was doing my stuff, getting ready. And Terry sees me, and he remembers me from that. And then he goes in and talks to his brother and this and that and uh, comes out and says, we're changing it. Bill Ash is going to work with uh, Dick Murdoch, and I'm going to work with Terry. And then Terry gets me aside and says, you know what? I'm going to jump on you, and I'm going to make it look like you're going to be a smash. Wow. And then you're going to make a comeback and we're going to go 10 minutes and you're going to do a Broadway with me. And that was the catalyst for my career. When when you, uh, when you won the Western States championship from Terry Funk, was that your first major? That was the first major. Yes. Yep. 
Well, and then, you know, what an area to be in. And like I said, you had, when you mentioned Dick Murdoch, another uh, just legit tough guy back in the day. Yes. You went yeah, to Georgia. Had... Another success story. Was that when Barnett, was Barnett running the office in Georgia when you got there? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was, he was part owner of Florida Championship Wrestling also. That was you my had, next. You had the uh, you had the opportunity to to work out and be around and team with a guy named Jack Briscoe. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. yeah. We were and we were we. I wrestled him in the Omni. I think it was the opening night for the Omni. Yeah, he was. The Jerry NWA Briscoe champion. was there um, when you were in Florida. You had Steve Kern. You got to work with a couple of guys who were were definitely uh, cream of the crop of that era too. Bob Orton Jr. and Bob Roop. Orton Jr. Dick Slater wasn't bad either. Oh no, no, no. Bob Roop though, he was the real deal. Yeah. Oh, he was. Uh, he was a Greco-Roman champion. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He, so, he, I just loved to get in the ring with him. Yeah. 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 And then that's where I met Eddie Graham, and uh, down in Florida is where uh, Eddie. Uh, 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 Jim Barnett was down there, and he was the one that uh, told me Vince McMahon Sr. was uh, looking for an All-American boy. Now, you, you were up in St. Louis, too, and I had heard the story one time. I guess I'd like you to confirm this or, or give us the facts. I had heard one time that it was actually Sam Muchnick that uh, put the bug in Vince Sr.'s ear about you as a possible WWF champion. And that could have well been. Because I know you were working St. Louis for quite a while there, and you had been the Missouri champion defeating Harley Race. Yes. yes. And um, I know and the story, is, as it was told, and this is a few years back, but uh, Vince Sr. had called Sam Muchnick. And, you know, the, the joy of this is that back in that era, all of these promoters and promotions did work together to exchange talent and, and oh, you know, trade absolutely. talent, they... you name it. And so Vince Sr. had talked to, to uh, Muchnick, and he recommended you to him. Yes, that could be true. But he, if he did that, you know, I was, you know, um, um, St. Louis was a, a two-day event, TV and then a live show. Right. So he probably would have said, you know, he's, uh, he's actually working down in Georgia or Florida. Sure. Uh, maybe you should call them and uh, try to contact him. Well, and I'm so, sure you had uh, Eddie Graham's blessings on it. Well, yeah, Eddie Graham was really, yeah, he was good, but but he actually talked to Jim Barnett. Right. And Jim Barnett's the one that called me in his office and said, you know, uh, Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, wants to talk to you. And he called Vince, or Jim Barnett called Vince McMahon Sr., and I had a conversation in, uh, in uh, uh, Jim Barnett's office in Florida. Now, when you, got, when you went over to the WWF, and, and it was the WWF still when you, when you got there, um, at what point were you made aware? Was it right away, or at what point were you made aware that they wanted to put the title on you? The first night I went up there, um, I had a match, and I met everybody, um, and uh, and I went back to Florida thinking that I was going to go back for another taping uh, in three weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Vince Sr. said that he would talk to Barnett and make sure that uh, it gets on the schedule down there. So I went back the next uh, the next TV and um, I worked had you know had a few matches uh, and uh, in the dressing room or in the restroom or the bathroom where we had all our business he brought me in there and told me you know I'm thinking I'm going to give put the belt on you. Wow, 
And, you know, that was quite a different formula for the WWF at that time because they had went for so many years with Bruno with the Italian uh, population on the East Coast. And then they had Morales for quite a while, a couple, three years. And at that point in time, it had been those two and then just interim champions like Ivan Koloff and uh, Stan Stasiak Superstar Billy Graham was the only heel at that point that had held the title for any length of time longer than Koloff and Stasiak did. He had a year-long run. And then how coincidental is it that he's the guy that you met back in 71 and and you get to take the title from him? Yeah, yeah. I believe believe in miracles. I believe if you think of something long enough, it's going to happen. And... uh, um, you know, just uh, it's an amazing story, and yeah, it's, uh, you couldn't uh, you couldn't make it up. <laughs> you know, it's uh, just uh, well. It, one of the things that made your your title reign so interesting during the five uh, plus years that you were WWF champion is that the formula then for that territory was that you, as the babyface champion, were always taking on bigger than big monster heels. Right. At what point, um, let, let's just move ahead a little bit then in the timeline here. We're getting close now to the early 80s. Wrestling is changing. Vince Jr. is now in charge. He's bought the company, got the company from his father. His father passes away. And here you are as champion, and you lose to the Iron Sheik. Yes. Now, how, how long did, was was that a decision that was made? Did you know about this going into it, or was this something that just sort of started happening real quick? Um, no, I did. It, I didn't know about it uh, a long time. And I want to say one thing though: I never was one to smooth with the promoters. Right. I never. They come and t- t- tell me from all through my career. They would come up and tell me what they had in mind for me. Right. In, in, including uh, in. Uh, in Oklahoma Territory, in Amarillo, uh, down with Jim Barnett and uh, Eddie Graham, they explained where I was going, what they were going to try to do in my career. But that, that looks like it turned Vince. out good for you. Yeah, and then going up and working with Vince McMahon Sr., he always brought me in the, in the bathroom in Madison Square Garden and told me what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was sort of the norm. Um as far as uh, promoters and how they treat you. And I never got involved with trying to influence them to do this or do that. I never suggested it. A couple times Vince McMahon Sr. said, why don't you come up for a finish with this match? And then uh, I'd give my ideas, and a couple times he did it, a couple times he didn't do it. But I didn't really care about uh, I was doing other things uh, with my time, and that wasn't one of the things I was interested in doing. But, uh, uh, and everything worked out fine the way it was. But and I thought Vince Jr. was on the same page as his father as far as values and uh, standards mm-hmm. and moral things and uh, integrity. Um, but um, and I, I knew about the uh, change a little bit before um, the uh, the that night. Okay. Well, now but you you had the long. opportunity to work with so many guys as we pointed to earlier. And, you know, the the vast amount of talent that you got into the ring with, did you ever have opportunities, Bob, when there were guys that would shoot on you? There was a, 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 uh, a few times. I think Harley Race put it the best. But okay. I don't know if you remember this, but he said a lot of guys tried him. 
but nobody mm-hmm. did it twice. Wow. There's a lot of times they were trying, but I didn't even know they were doing it. Uh, of guys like Harley Race, the Funks, Jack Briscoe, Nick Bockwinkle, uh, and I, we'd probably name a few others, but of those guys, is there one of them that stand out that you really enjoyed working with or that maybe you you didn't enjoy working with? So I enjoyed, uh, George, getting in the ring every night. And my goal, uh, you know, in res- amateur wrestling, I wanted to win the match. But right. in, in professional wrestling, I wanted to do my best I could as far as entertaining the people and make them go home with a, with, with a smile and with the, thinking that they, that was really worth it. Um, so I don't, I've never picked out one guy that was tougher than the other. I just loved every time. I couldn't wait to get to the arenas. I couldn't leave, wait to go home and get down to the arenas and, uh, and do my thing in the ring. And I tried to be just as intense in the high school gym as I did in Madison Square Garden or hey, any hey, other large building. And you mentioned... And I treated them all the same. I never said, geez, I'm going to slack off tonight. Uh, you know, it's just a little place. What difference is it going to make? I wanted to entertain people at a top level wherever I went to. And you mentioned Madison Square Garden and uh, some of the guys that you work with uh, with your monthly defenses there. A name that really comes out, and you mentioned in your book, is a guy that uh, you know is making a lot of news these days uh, with his uh, uh, trial about uh, something that happened over 30 years ago. We're talking about a guy that you had great matches with in the Garden, most memorable, a cage match. Uh, we're talking about Jimmy Snuka. Uh, you mentioned yes. him in your book. Uh, uh, a really at times, you know, he had such flashes of brilliance, but it seemed like his demons or something was just holding him back. And uh, now we're seeing all of this stuff uh, now with him late in life, suffering from cancer, having to, uh, uh, from what I'm hearing, having to stand trial for something that he did 30 years ago. I mean, how does how does, how does that make you feel? And what do you remember from working with Jimmy? Uh, I I know Jim Snooky, Jim, Jimmy Snooker, Superfly as a wrestler. In the ring is the only place I knew him. Okay. I didn't, uh, I didn't, uh, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't see him outside the ring. I didn't know how he was outside of the ring. Sure. I heard things, but I can't tell you. Uh, I, 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 I didn't witness anything. Uh, I, I usually went home or stayed in a separate motel, but uh, I didn't like, and I didn't dislike anybody, but I didn't like what they were doing. And I didn't really want to be around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I learned something uh, in eighth grade about peer pressure, and I never sir came to it again in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was uh, something pretty. It was a uh, pretty good thing to learn because uh, a lot of people that were tough people, uh, and I thought they'd never succumb to the pressure. But look at uh, look at the Iron Sheik destroyed his life because of drugs in the business. I thought he was strong enough to withstand that. But he did. He gave in to it, where I didn't. Mm-hmm. And you saw a lot of guys that you work with that, that that passed away that were, uh, you know, barely even got out into their forties. I mean, that, that must have been something. I mean, you were able to hold back. Something held you back. I mean, you had uh, good self control, whatever it was. But there was a lot of guys that you saw on the card that that were gone by by the end of the eighties and, and into the early nineties. Guys that were uh, robbed of their productive, a long productive life because of of some short lived and some, uh, you know, of their demons. Yeah, they cheated in life, but yeah, and you know, I, I, I had that incident happen to me in eighth grade. I found out that uh, they weren't really my friends. They weren't going to, you know, this and that, and uh, I, I was willing to say no to anybody, no matter what it was. If I didn't think it was going to be good for me, I wasn't going to do it, and I didn't care about the big muscles and all that junk. Um, uh, you know, it just it, that didn't impress me at all, but I had a man that was behind me 100% also, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Vince McMahon Sr. Mm-hmm. 
Now, we're talking about you just dropped the title to, to Hulk Hogan. Uh, Vince Vince Jr. has come in uh, with, uh, you know. Iron Sheik. Uh, uh, to the Iron Sheik. You dropped the title. Then Hogan, of course, uh, defeated uh, the Iron Sheik for the title. Thank you for getting that uh, back in line. But you, uh, you, the Sheik was pretty much the transition for, for Hogan. And, uh, of course, with Hulk Hogan brought in a whole different dynamic to the world of pro wrestling. One of the big major pro wrestling expansions into pop culture happened right in and around that time. What did you see as far as the sea changes when uh, Vince Jr. came in with this, uh, with this grander view of pro wrestling, not just being a territorial thing, but being more on the national scene and going beyond uh, and even into the world of uh, entertainment and rock and roll? Well, that was uh, the stepping uh, the the step towards uh, you know Vince taking over everybody, um, and uh, uh, I know that his relationship with a lot of the other promoters wasn't like his father's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think uh, they were probably going to do it on him if he didn't probably do it on him. But he, I think he jumped the gun and got a head start and uh, was able to uh, basically destroy all the other promoters in the business. Mm-hmm. Now there was talk. There was talk of you uh, possibly if you were going to, if you did stay around longer than you did uh, with the WWF after Hogan kind of came in, that they wanted to turn you heel. Now, what, what were your what was your uh, idea and objections to that at the time? Well, uh, you know, I'd been an All American boy for uh, for six years, and I I started having Bob Backlund kids tournaments uh, in a cup in Long Island in Connecticut and. Uh, I went around giving a lot of talks about uh, this and that, and about not doing this, and uh, about doing this to train your or, or to help get successful. Um, and I had a daughter that was six years old, and she was just going to be starting school. And I didn't want to uh, be a bad guy when she was just, you know, I would have been a good guy in 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 the town of Glastonbury, Connecticut. And if I would have turned bad, I thought that would be very bad for her in school to hear or think bad things about her father. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I didn't want to let down all the kids that I told to, uh, you know, do good things and, uh, um, you know, work hard and be dedicated and don't cheat in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically the reason why I didn't uh, become a bad guy. I didn't mind wrestling Hulk Hogan uh, uh, getting in the ring and uh, let the people decide, but they didn't want to take a chance to doing that. Mm-hmm. And that that led you uh, shortly thereafter to uh, uh, leave the WWF. You did a little bit, a brief run uh, with uh, the promoters that got together, including Vern Gagne and Jerry Jarrett on the and, and then Jim Crockett for a point on the Pro Wrestling USA project. Uh, you were there for a for a, for a, for a, a, short, a short time. Can you talk Very about? Short time, yeah, I can you talk that. about that working with that? I mean, it was so many promoters together. Could they even order lunch? Let alone uh, put together a, a wrestling card. You know, it was, it was, uh, I didn't, I shouldn't even have went there because, uh, there were so many bosses and, you know, you can't have all those, uh, different, too, too many people trying to run the show. And, uh, I realized that Vince McMahon was the man and, uh, um, you know, without him in there, the All American boy is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't mind just that stepping aside. Mm-hmm. And you did, but some... I knew there wasn't going to be anything going or coming out of those, those organizations as far as, any kind of success over Vince McMahon Jr. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the way they were running and how, how many. There's got to be one guy that uh, has to say. Yeah, exactly. You nailed it right on the head, Bob. Uh, we got to talk about what you did outside. Of the, I mean, you left pro wrestling. Uh, you went uh, outside of pro wrestling for a while until you came back in the early 90s. What's, uh, what things uh, did you uh, keep yourself occupied with and what things did you work on while you were away from pro wrestling until that return to the WWF in the early 90s? Yeah, well, 
you know, uh, there was some years there was uh, just, you know, I could tell you, told us uh, about uh, me thinking about the past <laughs> rather than the future. I just didn't think there was going to uh-huh. be anything to replace uh, what I'd already done. But I was a, I had an oil business for a while. I was a bail bondsman for a while. Um, you know, the oil business was uh, really good. I was, I, uh, I did some financial investing and stuff uh, at one time. Um, and I, I had a lot of different things going on at, at, uh, at the same time, actually, you know. Mm-hmm. When did when did uh, this whole thing come back together for you to go to go back to the WWF and my lord you ended up uh, becoming a heel and one of the most interesting fascinating heels of that era. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, um, I, I'm not. I, you know, the WWE was in that era. There, they were way down. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the, the 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 margin wasn't too uh, too big, and I think uh, uh, they were kind of interested in trying something uh, new or something, you know, to see if it would work. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, I went back to be uh, mom and dad and apple pie, and um, it, it wasn't, I realized in the ring that it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to Vince McMahon and I said, I want to be bad now. And he said, why do you want to be bad? I said, because the good guys are lying, cheating, and swearing. Mm-hmm. Let me be bad by being good. Oh, exactly. And look at how that worked out. Even in, I mean, that was the early 90s. That yeah. evolved into the end of the decade. That became the, the cool thing to cheer the bad guy. But at that time, I remember when they when they put the turn on you in, in the uh, Bret Hart title match for TV. Uh, yes. Yeah, that that led uh, to uh, a, a real ramping up of the uh, the Bob uh, Backlund gimmick. And you became not only Mr. Or Bob Backlund, but you became Mr. Bob Backlund. And that... You ended up in a pretty hot feud there uh, with the, the with Bret Hart that culminated in your second yep. title reign. Now, uh, were you quite ready to take on? I mean, it was not a very uh, long title reign, but were you ready at all for the fact that they were going to put the belt on you, even for that short period of time? Well, no, I was told that I was going to have it for a year and then give it back to Bret. Okay, so they completely sidetracked you. What was it? What, a matter of days when they they did the thing in, in Madison Square Garden with uh, with with Diesel. Three days later, uh, they. Uh... You know, I was I was very excited to you know Brett did this for you know turned it over to me and I was very proud that he did that and it was a big thing for him to do that actually and I was I was really looking forward to uh, you know running the year with it as Mr. Backlund and then uh, uh, you know return it to Brett uh, at a real high level I was really psyched about that because mm-hmm. because of what he did just has done for me oh absolutely and you guys uh, had some some really good I didn't get to together. do that but they used it uh, they said that. Uh, uh, that's when Macho Man Randy Savage, Randy Savage left the business and uh, turned over to the other organization, and they wanted to try to uh, replace him with uh, Diesel. Speaking of which, uh, Bob, were you ever, uh, I guess, uh, courted by Eric Bischoff and any of the guys at World Championship Wrestling around that time when you were wrestling and then doing some managing uh, in the, the WWE? No, I no no. Okay. No, no I, I didn't. Uh, I did some a few little things, but not nobody ever really, you know. Um, came and did anything because I wasn't in. You know, I was see. I wasn't in their tea party. See, yeah, I suppose that would probably you're not in there uh, up everybody's butt. So you weren't exactly getting all this information or trying to uh, sway no, influence. You know, see, sway I didn't influence. party with them when throughout my career. Okay, they were taking care of people that were in their little group. Everybody had a little group, uh, like a uh, you know just a little. They had a few people around them, and then they, you know they would. But uh, I didn't have anything like that. It was just me. We're talking with uh, Bob Backlund, uh, George Shire. We're going to bring you back into the conversation, George. 
Uh, Bob Backlund, do you remember quite well when Bob uh, did the heel turn? I do. And in fact, um, I got to admit that I was kind of fading away from the wrestling scene at that point because as it became more and more entertainment emphasis rather than the uh, wrestling and and storyline emphasis, um, I did fade away a little bit. But yes, I do remember it. And you know, Bob, you had mentioned early on in our conversation today that it was a five-year project to uh, put your book together. And I can certainly speak from experience on that, that, you know, doing a book isn't something you just decide to do some morning and get it done in a few weeks. It it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of uh, uh, frustration along the way and ups and downs with it. But when the finished product comes out and, and your book is just an outstanding example of, of five years worth of hard work that has paid off, bring us up to date a little bit on what Aside from the book, what Bob Backlund is doing today? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm doing this. I'm doing what I'm doing with you a lot, and <laughs> I'm going great. and doing book signings. I like going to libraries. I've had most of my biggest meetings in libraries, and uh, I go to book signing places and sign books. And uh, um, I'm running around a lot. I was out in Iowa, uh, Chicago, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, signing books, and uh, I want to introduce the book to as many people as I can because I really believe in the story, and I, I'm hoping that it'll, uh, you know, do what uh, some books did for me in my life for other. People. I was gonna, I was going to mention to you that if you do ever get uh, back here to Minnesota and you get to the Twin Cities, uh, it would be great to hook up with you at a library or someplace sometime and and sit down and chat. I did have an opportunity to see you this past uh, spring. And and I didn't have a chance to talk with you, but I was at uh, Vern Gagne's uh, memorial service, and I know you were there, and uh, you were there, and then you seemed to disappear, so I uh, didn't have a chance to uh, chat with you. Yeah, I talked to Eddie Sharkey there. Yeah, Eddie and, was uh, there. In I, fact, I, Eddie uh, was sitting uh, just a couple seats away from me. Yeah, yeah, I talked to Eddie Sharkey. Uh, he came down, and... Uh, uh, I hadn't seen him, but he came down uh, just before I left, and uh, I was down, uh, you know, I said a little bit to Greg, and then, uh, um, uh, but he came down. I, he gave me his business card actually, and uh, and then uh, and then I went on the way. But yeah, I was at Vern Gagne, um, You know, I uh, I met him a long uh, a long time ago at a at a at a wrestling match at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't talk to him very much, but I just shook his hand. I was so shy, but uh, uh, he seemed he seemed like he was a very nice person. Well, and you did work for him for a little bit in the seventies there. Yeah, yeah, and they, uh, you know, they did, uh, you know, they had. They, I worked with Harley under uh, uh, under the AWA, and they had me go Broadway with him, which uh, was a very nice thing. I, they could have very easily said, "Geez, you know, let let him go over." I was just starting, so that was mm-hmm. kind of a compliment to me. Well, I, I think what you had going for you, as I said earlier, is that you had that wrestling background, and, and, and that for Vern Gagne, you know, of all the territories around the country, every one of them had their own niche, but the AWA was always, Vern always had that, he wanted that wrestler, and then, like I said earlier, create a character or a gimmick if need be, but the wrestler was important, and you know, the talent that he had with guys like Robinson and Morocco and Ray Stevens and... Uh, you know, the list just goes on, Bachwinkle. I mean, they were all wrestlers. And, yep. of course, Vern himself, one of the greatest uh, amateur and then professional wrestlers. Yeah, no, he, he was uh, at the University of Minnesota. He had a, did a 
Bob, tell us how we can get your book. Those that are listening, how can they get your book? I have a website. It's uh, backlandenergy.com. It's backlandenergy.com, and uh, um, people can purchase it there, and then I sign it to them. I don't hire somebody to do that stuff. I, I do it myself, but I'll sign the book, and I'll ship it to them myself. That's awesome. Backlandenergy.com. Well, I want to thank you here. It looks like we're getting close to the Broadway time. The, the timekeeper's looking at me ready to ring that bell. Uh, but well, I'm what, getting ready to go down and do a workout. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, it, it never ends for this guy. This where do you, It's like the Energizer Bunny. Bob Backlund, our guest this hour, his great book. Check it out. Backlund from All-American Boy to Professional Wrestling's World Champion. And there's a forward in there uh, by the late Roddy Piper that you got to check out as well. Oh, Bob, it's been fun chatting with you. Finally uh, able to track down the, one of the busiest uh, former world champions around these days. It's been great. I, gee, you know what? Uh, I want to tell all the people out there in Minnesota, you don't know how great you have it there. It's a wonderful place. I, I think about uh, Princeton, Minnesota every day of my life. And, uh, um, I, uh, you know, it wasn't easy, but uh, I wouldn't have wanted to grow. I've been in a lot of places, and I wouldn't have wanted to grow up any other place than where I had. We need to get I, I, you have a great state to live in. We need to get you up to Thief River Falls, Minnesota, right, George? Well, that's up to you. I'd rather have him come to the Twin <laughs> Cities. <laughs> you know what? Hey, Bob, you know, I want to thank you too. I, I know you're busy and and doing book signings and and you know speaking and everything. I know that takes a lot of time too. But how fun is it? And I certainly. I want to thank you for the inspiration that you've shared and telling us how not to look at the past, look to the future, look to your goals. I think that's something that we can all learn from and everyone should. And I just uh, I wish you the best of luck going forward. I hope you sell a million copies. And I hope if you decide you'd like to come back on with us sometime, we'd love to have you on Rasslin' Memories. That would be great, and I want to. And I want to get back there sometime and, uh, and do a big signing someplace. Uh, and that could be not – and I'm – not so far into the future. That'd be great. Well, thank you, Bob. Gentlemen, for... thank you, and uh, uh, keep up the good work, and keep working hard out there in Minnesota. Take care, my friend. Work hard, work pays off. Absolutely. Bye-bye, Bob. Okay, bye. Well, that's Bob Backlund, and uh, wow, the time limit has uh, come to an end. George, what did we get ourselves into? That was a great hour. Well, and you know, all of our shows are, and the fans that have been listening to us for a little over four years now, I think it's four and a half years, isn't it, Glenn? You are correct, sir. Yeah, four and a half years, wrestling memories. We're not as regular as we used to be, but when we come back, and it's uh, uh, main event time every time out. We have Bob Backlund today, and you know, you, we invite people to go to the website, look at all of the wrestlers that we've talked to, and man, there are superstars on top of superstars. And listen to the interviews, and you learn so much about wrestling. And, Glenn, of course, it's always just a, a blast working with you. I applaud you. You may be a young'un, but you're a good'un. Oh, thank you, George. And it's always it's been great uh, working on this program with you for so many years. And, yeah, we pick our shots now, but whenever we get together, it seems like we're never at a shortage of topic matter. Well, and Bob was very, very spirited today. He had a lot of energy. You know, I could almost see him. He, he's kind of a, he said he's a shy person, but, you know, you could see the animation or we could hear the animation uh, coming from him. And uh, uh, he, he's, he's quite the guy, I guess. As an amateur wrestler, I appreciated him. I liked him as a pro, so I do wish him the best of luck. 
Well, it looks like it's time for us to head on out of here. Uh, George, always a pleasure. Uh, we'll have to do this again. We'll, you know, 2016, we'll, we'll pick and choose. We'll be back again with more wrestling memories, I presume. Indeed we will. And you have a good holiday season, Glenn, my friend. You too, Mr. Shire, and everybody out there listening. This has been Wrestling Memories from RadioNorthland.org.